Revelation chapter 9. As we have seen in our study of the book of Revelation, the language and the imagery is that of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And this should not surprise the reader, though it does, I think, because the issue at hand are the judgments that are coming on those who have broken the Old Covenant. And therefore, the language is that of the Old Covenant. And we need to be clear that the things that are described here, the events that John foretells, are not mindless cruelty um, from some petulant deity who's, who's throwing a hissy fit because people aren't listening to him. No, these are the judgments. These are the judgments that were promised and agreed upon between God and Israel back in the book of Deuteronomy. When Israel entered into covenant with the Lord God Almighty, it was agreed. I mean, half of them went on Mount Ebal, half, half on Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing, the Mount of Cursing. And the law was read and it was said, if we don't do these things, these are the curses that are going to come upon us. And the people said, Amen. Absolutely, this is the way it is. In the book of Revelation, we find those promises being fulfilled. If we are not clear about this, our passage today, I think, clarifies the matter for us in two different ways. First of all, it describes to us the origin, the source of the judgments come from the golden altar that is before God and the reasons for these judgments. Something we've not seen up to this point. John explains why uh, these things have happened, why these judgments have come about. To review a bit and hopefully not to belabor a point, but I, I do want you to get the point. Revelation is about worship. And I think we lose that because we fail to appreciate that judgment and justice is a part of worship. That is, we say to God, you are worthy. We worship you because you are holy and because you do what is right. Judgment is an expression of God's holiness. Justice is an expression of God's holiness. And God's people are to pray for justice. In the scripture, you cannot separate justice and worship. And as we've seen, there are at least two aspects to this. One deals with ourselves. That is, in our dealings with other people, we are to act with justice. And Jesus says, listen, if you're not acting with justice toward other people, basically don't bother coming to church. Don't bother coming to worship because something is wrong. You need to correct that injustice. And then you can worship God. And so we need to act with justice toward others. But then the second aspect comes up. What if other people don't act with justice toward me? What am I supposed to do then? And we are told that God is the one who is to take care of that. God is to protect his people, to judge those who oppose him and his people, those who persecute his people. This belongs to God. I am not to take matters into my own hands. So we are not to wrong others. When we are wronged, we are not to respond uh, with anger, with bitterness, uh, with retaliation. We want to. I mean, there's something deep within us as human beings that loves the idea of revenge. I mean, I think some of my favorite movies are when somebody gets revenge. I mean, we have this, this, this sense of, yes, you know, they got what they deserve. But that's not worship. Worship is committing that situation to God and saying, 
you are the judge of all things, of all people, and I commit this to you. Now, again, if I've done wrong, I need to make that right. But if someone has done wrong against me, then those things are in God's hands. But this raises an important question. What about the police? What about going to court? What about judges? Can we, do we as Christians have the right to seek relief there? And yes, we do. Because as we saw last year when we went through the issue of war, God has put people in positions of authority and they have a responsibility to reward those who do right and to punish those who do wrong. So if someone has done wrong against me, then I think I have the right to go to God's installed authority, as imperfect as it is, and to seek for justice. What if I don't get justice in the court system? Again, these matters are in God's hands. I am not to take it into my own hands as much as I might want to. In fact, revenge is anti-worship. We will talk about the Antichrist later on. Revenge is anti-worship. It is the exact opposite of worship. And not simply taking revenge, but thinking about taking revenge. Anger, bitterness, and malice, these things are the opposite of worshiping God. What about persecution? Well, this is what John is dealing with. He and the people of his generation were being persecuted. And he tells us indirectly that the church is to look to God and worship and to look for justice. And thus the saints say, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the land and avenge our blood. And so in persecution, we are not to take matters into our own hands. We are currently in the section that deals with the seven trumpets. And as we have seen, trumpets in the Old Testament point to a number of things. It was used to summon Israel to worship. It was used to signal the beginning of the new month. It was used, they blew the horns, the trumpets, when sacrifices were being burned. I think usually we don't think of that, but it was, if you wish, sort of the soundtrack to sacrificial worship, the trumpets were being blown. They were blown when it was time to go into battle against an enemy. At the beginning of the year of Jubilee, whenever there was a new king, the trumpets were to be blown. But anyone who knows the Old Testament, whenever you hear about seven trumpets, immediately what should come up in your mental concordance, if you wish, is Jericho. The priest with the seven trumpets who went in front of Israel as they marched around, seven priests, seven trumpets. And the result was the total destruction of Jericho. And what is about to happen is the destruction of Israel because of their breaking of the covenant. We saw that the first four trumpets could be taken together, just as the first four seals could. And these represent the plagues reminiscent of what happened to Egypt and Babylon. What God did to his enemies in the Old Covenant, he is now doing to those who have broken the Old Covenant. Last week we looked at the fifth trumpet. And so, I don't want to repeat what I said last week. The judgment is a plague that looks like locusts, but it is in fact a plague of demons. As I said last Sunday, Jesus spoke and said that this would happen to his generation. He came and cleaned out the demonic forces that were in Palestine. I didn't mention this, but it has been argued that what we see during the lifetime of Jesus was an anomaly. That is, you have a lot of demon possession. It's not to say you didn't have it before. It's not to say that we don't have it today. 
think we do. But it was on such a massive scale because God had come into the world in the person of Jesus that now Satan sends out his forces to afflict and to, if you wish, to possess people. And the battle in much of Jesus' ministry is, in fact, with these demons. In fact, one person has a legion of demons, so many demons in him. Jesus comes in and he cleans house, but the Jews do not turn to him. They reject him. They kill him. And as a result, as Jesus says, you know, a demon that's cast out and then he comes back and sees everything's nice and clean. He brings seven more of his friends and the situation is worse than it was in the beginning. That is what will happen to the people of Israel. Now, if that isn't bad enough, where we ended last week was verse number 12 in which we read the first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. It's not, it's going to get worse. Today, we will look at the sixth trumpet or the second woe, which is described beginning in verse number 13 to the end of the chapter. And follow along if you would as I read. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mountain troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The hoarders and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they afflict injury or inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Lest we think that this is somehow just a, a fluke in, in nature, or this is, this is just God being angry, we see in verse number 13 the origin of this judgment. And I think John tells us this for a particular reason. In the fifth trumpet, we are told, you know, the trumpet blows and a star that had fallen to earth uh, called the destroyer, Abaddon in Hebrew, Apollyon in Greek, is given authority and he sends out the demonic hordes. And the reader might forget that Satan is not in control. One might think that these things are happening because in the conflict between God and Satan, which people oftentimes see as two equals fighting, that somehow Satan now has the upper hand. And the sixth trumpet begins by telling us that no, that's not the way it is, that there's a voice that comes from between the horns on the golden altar giving instructions as to what is to be done. A voice comes from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. Now, we saw this altar in chapter 8. It is the altar of incense in the tabernacle or the temple. 
It is right in front of the veil. You have the temple of, or, I'm sorry, the altar of incense. And then you have the veil. And then that is the holiest place behind there. That is where the Ark of the Covenant is, which represents the presence of God. We have also seen that the incense that is burned on the altar of incense is described by John as the prayer of the saints. These are God's people praying for justice. So out of their prayers for justice come these judgments. Which again, I think is very hard for us because we think of turning the other cheek. And yes, we are. We do turn the other cheek, but it doesn't mean that we don't do anything. We turn the other cheek and then we cry out to God for justice. It is the prayer of the saints that the prayers of the saints that lead to the outpouring of these judgments. Now, there are four horns on the altar and the, the NIV has a footnote that says projection. And I think that's somewhat helpful for those who aren't familiar with the Old Testament. At each corner of the altar was a horn that came out and it wasn't for decoration. I mean, it, it had a very specific purpose. There are two altars, one inside for incense, one outside in the courtyard. That's where they burned animals, the altar of burnt uh, offerings. Both of them had horns on them. Now, if the individual had sinned, they would come to the priest. They would confess their sin and blood. The animal would be killed and some of the blood would be saved. And then it would be put, it would be smeared by the priest using his finger on the four horns of the altar. It's part of the ritual. The blood was to be smeared on the horns, around the horn uh, that was on the altar of burnt offerings. But, if the whole nation had sinned, then you'd take the blood and not on the altar outside. The priest was to go inside the golden altar of incense that is before God. And their blood was to be taken and put on the four horns of the altar. So I think what is being described here is, well, first of all, two things. First, the prayer of the saints, the altar of incense, but also that the people, the community of Israel is seen as being guilty of sin. And therefore, this judgment is coming upon them. It doesn't happen out in the courtyard. It happens here in the altar of incense. And by the way, as I mentioned before, there's no veil here. We have the altar and there's God on his throne. And because of Jesus Christ, the veil has been taken down. And now the prayers of God's people go directly to God. There is no veil to keep them from God himself. So one calls out from the midst of these prayers and gives instructions to the angel, the angel that has just blown the trumpet, that he is to let loose the four angels that are bound at the river Euphrates. And in verses 14 through 19, we have a description of the instrument of judgment that is being used here in the sixth trumpet. Now, something should be very clear to us right away, but if it's not, let's explain it. If you have four angels that are bound, these are not good angels. Okay? The angels that are holy angels, we see them flying in the presence of God. They surround the throne. We see them doing what God wants them to do. When we have angels that are bound up, that are tied up, these aren't good angels. And Peter tells us that when the angels sinned, 
Those who sinned, God cast them down and they were put in hell and they were bound there. So the four angels at the river Euphrates, these are not good angels, these are evil, these are demonic angels that are going to be let loose to accomplish God's purpose. But I think certain questions arise from this passage and let's try to answer them to understand what's going on here. Why four? Why four angels? Well, we've seen before that the number four is important. I mean, you have the four horns of the altar, the four corners of the earth, uh, the four directions on the compass, the four winds. But four is usually used with regard to God's people. The judgment is going to be poured out on Israel. And so it is entirely appropriate that four angels would be let loose to do their worst to bring about God's judgment. But why use demons? Why use evil angels? Why not use good angels? Well, those who know the Old Testament know that in the story of Israel, time and time and time again, God used wicked nations, pagan nations, to afflict and to bring judgment and devastation on his people. God used ungodly people, and this is one of the problems with Habakkuk, where Habakkuk says, look at, look at your people, they're a mess. They're, no one's doing what they're supposed to do. They're wicked. What are you going to do? And God said, don't worry about it, I'm sending the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk are you kidding? I mean, we're bad, but I mean, these people are horrible. No, in the Old Testament, God uses wicked forces to judge and to punish his people. So now when we come to Revelation and we see that God is using demonic forces, yes, that fits in with what we see in the Old Testament. God using those who have evil desires and evil purposes. I mean, demons, they're not like, ooh, we get to serve God. I mean, no, they're not happy about that. They're getting to do what they want to do. You know, when the Assyrians came in, they came in to conquer, to steal, to take away. When the Babylonians came, they came to conquer. But God uses their evil purposes to achieve his good purpose, which was to judge his people. And did you notice, as I read, that we are told that these four angels were kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year? I think John wants the reader to know, God through John wants the reader to know, that this was predestined, this was certain, that God is in control. Now, I know people don't like the words predestined or predestination, but they like the idea that God is in control. They like to hear that God is in control. But let me ask you, how do you think that that control comes about if, in fact, God in fact, has not predestined the things that are to happen. What about the river Euphrates? I mean, what, what is that all about? I mean, a change in geographical setting. Well, when God gave the promised land to his people, the Euphrates was to be the northern border. That's where Israel was supposed to be. They didn't achieve that except for a short time uh, during David and Solomon's rules. But again, those who know the Old Testament know trouble comes from the Euphrates. That's where the Assyrians came from. It's where the Babylonians came from. It's where the Persians came from. If you read the Old Testament and someone says, oh, we're having company from the Euphrates, you know this is not good. Okay? 
And so when John says that the four angels are, are let loose at the river Euphrates, the reader knows this isn't good. Something bad is going to happen because that's the way it is in the Old Testament. It only, only bad news seems to come from the Euphrates. Assyria came in, took the ten tribes to the north into captivity, and for all practical purposes, they disappeared. We speak of the ten lost tribes of Israel. The Babylonians replace them and come and take Judah and Benjamin, take them into captivity. And after 70 years, some of them come back, but the land is never the same. The difference here is the army is not Assyrian. It is not Babylonian. It's not Persian. It's demonic. And would we expect anything else from the river Euphrates? What about the number of this army? The NIV is most unhelpful here, which is a polite way of saying they missed the boat, um, because they give a specific number, 200 million. And those of you who know of people who speculate in the book of Revelation, they're like, oh, the Chinese, they got plenty of Chinese up there. You know, that's them. They're coming from the north. No, no, no. Um, the, the King James has 200,000, thousand, and both, I think, missed the point. Um, there are two things going on here. First of all, we want to get the point. It's just a huge number. I mean, in, in Greek, it is literally um, twice 10,000 times 10,000. The word myriad in, in English comes from the Greek word here, uh, 10,000. It's just a number that cannot be counted. Okay? It's not 200 million. It's just a bunch. Okay? But secondly... This is a number that is used in the book of Psalms. It is a phrase, an expression that is used in Psalm 68 to describe the forces of God. We'll get to that in a minute. But when John uses this phrase, he isn't trying for us to get out the calculator and what's 10,000 times 10,000. No, no, no. The language is Old Testament. When was the last time I heard this phrase? Oh, that's right. Psalm 68, verse 17, the forces of God. Ah, that's what it's about. Something else. Did you notice that John says, I heard their number? And there's a pattern I've mentioned before in, in Revelation. Generally speaking, John hears, then he sees. He hears, and then he sees. He hears their number, and then he sees them. And what is the description of this army? Well, the number that is used is to remind us of God's army from Psalm 68. But as John begins to describe this army, this is not God's army. These are not God's chariots. This is something very, very different. These are horrifying images, terrifying images, revolting images, and I think they're meant to be. By the way, in Deuteronomy 28... In describing the curses for breaking the covenant, we read this sentence. God says to Israel, the sights you see will drive you mad. In other words, you're going to see things that will just scare you and horrify you and drive you insane. I think that's what John is trying to tell us here. That the picture he has of these uh, men on horses or these creatures on horses with the breastplates and then the horses have heads like lions and then their tails are like snakes with which they inflict pain. This is meant to be a terrifying picture 
of the demonic forces that are going to come against Israel as part of God's judgment. But why is God doing this? Why is this horrible judgment going to come on Israel? Well, in verses 20 and 21, we are now told, we are now told in part the reasons for the judgment. Up to this point, it's been implied. You know, the seals on the scroll, you know, the covenant, all that type of stuff. Here, what becomes clear is that people have done something and they refuse to repent of what they have done. It's really, really quite amazing. God sends his son into the world. The goodness of God is seen in sending his son. People reject him. God now sends judgment. And we read in verse number 20 and then verse 21, they still did not repent. Uh, Emily read to us several weeks ago from Romans 2. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? As I said, God showed his kindness and goodness in sending his son now his wrath is being seen in the second coming of his son, not the big second coming, but in his return to the land in judgment. And they still do not repent. Those who were not killed by the plagues, John tells us, do not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols, did not repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, their thefts. If we're not careful, I think this will throw us a curve and, and we'll miss the point here. I don't think that these are necessarily to be taken one by one and to be taken literally, although one could make a case. Murder, um, the Jewish people uh, put Jesus to death. They were responsible for persecuting the church, killed various apostles. So you could say, well, they did murder. Uh, their fascination with magic arts. We're told in Acts chapter 8 that Simon Magus had great popularity. He was a sorcerer, but he was with the Samaritans and not with the Jews. Uh, in Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas go to Cyprus, there they meet a Jewish sorcerer named uh, Bar-Jesus. Uh, Bar um, but again, he's not in Palestine. He's part of the diaspora. Um, I think when you take this list, and if we could go back in time and say, okay, people, do you think you are guilty of these things? They would say, absolutely not. We don't worship idols. We don't worship demons. We're not into magic arts. We don't do these kinds of things. John, this is all propaganda. You're, you're, trying, to, you're trying to make us look bad. We haven't done these things. We are not guilty of doing these things. You know, if somebody's done something wrong, they generally have a sense of guilt. You know that, yes, I've done something wrong. But I think the people who would read this, about whom John is right, they're like, well, John, you're, what, you're, you've missed the boat. We're not guilty of any of these things. We don't worship demons. We don't worship idols. Well, in our study of 1 Corinthians, we saw that, that Paul put the two together. That if you participate in the worship of idols, you're actually participating in the worship of demons. And someone has argued that idolatry in its larger meaning is properly understood as any substitution of what is created for the creator. It's anything that comes between us and God. That's an idol. But that's not what John says here, is it? He's talking about idols that are made of gold, 
silver, bronze, stone, wood. You know, he's not talking about the, uh, the idol of wealth or the idol of celebrity or fame. He's talking about, you know, honest to goodness, what we generally think of as idols, concrete objects. Most Jews during John's time would have nothing to do with idolatry. As someone has said, the Jews learned their lesson by the time of the captivity in Babylon. They learned their lesson about idolatry. They would have nothing to do with idols. And again, they would say to John, you're not talking about us. You must be talking about somebody else because we don't worship demons or idols. Is John wrong? Has he missed the boat? No. But I don't, again, I don't think he's saying you people are guilty of doing this. Rather, he's using Old Testament language. And let me read to you a passage from the book of Daniel, chapter 5. Daniel is speaking to Belshazzar. Remember the writing on the wall? Many, many tekel ufarsim. You, know, you have been found, you've been put in the scales and found wanting. Belshazzar, tonight you're going to die. But this is what Daniel says to him before he interprets the writing on the wall. The Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets, them, sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Later in the book of Revelation, John will refer to Jerusalem as Babylon. He begins here by saying, the sins of Babylon, those are your sins. And what happened to Babylon, the judgment, that is what is going to happen to you. We've already seen hints of this. I think if we could sort of get our minds to work in a particular way. Um, we've seen, and in fact it's mentioned 12 times in the book of Revelation, the sin of sexual immorality or fornication. And John uses it 12 times in this book. And it doesn't refer specifically, or it does specifically, but not only exclusively to sexual immorality, but the idea of apostasy. When I was younger, and some people still make this mistake, I would confuse adultery with idolatry because they sound a lot alike. Um, well, you know what? If you read the Old Testament, God says adultery or I'm sorry, idolatry is adultery. Because you are in covenant with God, you have made a bond with God. He is your husband. And then you worship other gods. You have broken your marriage vow in worshiping idols you have committed spiritual adultery. And John is saying to the people of Israel, judgment is coming down the pike like you cannot imagine. As God said to Israel, what you see will drive you mad. And perhaps one of these Sundays, I'll, I'll bring down Josephus from the library and read it to you. What happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD is almost beyond human description. And it wasn't simply one army, the Romans, taking over a city, Jerusalem. It is God pouring out his judgment 
because they broke the covenant. John is trying to make the case here that the judgments that are about to come are not undeserved, they are not unfair, they are not cruel, they are the consequences for breaking God's covenant. The Lord willing, we'll pick this up next week, but let me remind you of three things as we close. First of all, this may sound strange, but God is not a liar. God is not a liar. God keeps his word. And his patience and his mercy should not be taken as God not telling the truth. I think people have become so accustomed to the idea of divine mercy that they forget the aspect of justice. And they think, well, that God would never do that. Well, God has said he would do that. And God is not a liar. I was reminded, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, um, usually happens in a grocery store, I'm not sure why, where you're in the aisle and, and some kid is misbehaving and, and the mother or father says, I'm going to give you the three to straighten up. One, two, three. You know, a kid's still, you know, acting up. And when I get really sarcastic, which isn't good, I'm like 19, 20. I mean, come on. At what point are you going to stop counting and do something? God is not a liar. Judgment is coming. And we should not take mercy as somehow a canceling out of what he has said would happen. God's mercy is only possible because the judgment that should have been ours, the demons from the Euphrates, and worse, was put on Christ. You see, Jesus on the cross is not simply a man being crucified. It is a man experiencing the wrath of God, the judgment of God for us. But I think we should be very clear. God is not a liar. Secondly, God is in control. And in talking to different ones of you, I know that you have experienced working with difficult people, working with people who drive you nuts, living door to next, living next door to people who drive you nuts. And I think somewhere along the line we have forgotten that God is in control. And if you doubt that, then the next time it happens, read this chapter and realize that God is using demons to accomplish his purpose. Now, the people next to you at work may be a moron, okay? But I don't think you'd ever call them a demon, okay? I don't know, you might be tempted after the sermon, but, um, but God is in control. And God, in fact, may be using that person to teach you something. God doesn't lie, and God is in control. What is the third thing? I find this really amazing. How do people respond to divine judgment? Well, in chapter 6, the sixth seal, we saw that people call on the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of him who is on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. We saw last week with the fifth trumpet, people will look for death and not find it. In our passage today, in the face of judgment, people will not repent. In chapter 16, three times we are told... 
that as a result of the plagues, people curse the name of God. They curse God. They will not repent. And we might be tempted to say, well, you know, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. You know, if, if God would be a little nicer to people, then they might repent. No, he sent his son, and certainly some people did repent, but many did not, and they put him to death. And now John describes a situation in which God's judgment is poured out, and one would think, I need to do something about this. I need to repent. Why would I curse someone who has the capacity to bring all of this devastation on me? And it should be a reminder to us that repentance is a gift from God. Those of us who have been Christians for some time now, we may have forgotten that, that way back when, that day when Christ called us and we repented of our sins, it wasn't something in ourselves. It was a gift that God gave us. And judgment will not cause people to repent. Goodness will not cause people to repent. Repentance only comes by the goodness and the graciousness of God. And I think if we have repented, we should be grateful and give thanks to God because of his wonderful gift. But again, I, again, I would remind you, God does not lie. What is written in his word is true. He may delay. He may be merciful and patient, but it doesn't mean he's lying. Judgment is coming. And God is in control. Boy, if, if you learn nothing else from the book of Revelation, you should learn that. God is in control. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you do keep your word. We know how frustrating and painful it is when people don't keep their word to us, when a promise is made and it is broken. It can be devastating. Somehow we forget that you keep your word. Yes, you can be merciful. Yes, you can be patient. But what you have said will come to pass. If we do not repent, we will experience your judgment. I think this is something that each of us should probably meditate on. That you keep your word. That you are in control. This is your world. And even when wicked and evil people, individuals, for their own wicked and evil purposes, seek to make our lives miserable, they are in fact accomplishing your purposes. If you could use demonic hordes to bring about your judgment, then certainly you can use individual people in our lives. May we remember that we are not to retaliate, we're not to respond in anger. We are to worship you and to commit these situations into your hands. 
We thank you for the gift of repentance. And I ask that if there are some here today who have not been given this gift, you would give it to them even this day. Open their hearts and their eyes to turn to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Revelation. May we consider and meditate on what we've heard this day. Now we ask that your grace and spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.